I'd like to begin with a story. It's a true story as far as I know, um, but to understand it, you need a little bit of background. You need to understand that it takes place in a Russian Orthodox church, and they're a little different than us. Uh, for example, traditionally, women wear head coverings when they come to church there, and they would normally always wear a dress. Uh, they would not be seen wearing pants in a church like that. Um, additionally, their different ministers have different names, uh, specifically the high-ranking bishops. Uh, some of the highest-ranking bishops are called metropolitans. So I just need you to have that background going into this. One Sunday, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom gave the sermon as follows. Last night, a woman with a child came to this church. She was in trousers and with no headscarf. Someone scolded her. She left. I do not know who did that, but I am commanding that person to pray for her and her child to the end of his days, to God for their salvation. Because of you, she may never go to church again. And then he sat down. That was the sermon. My sermon is longer than that. James' words in our epistle today are very much in the same spirit as Metropolitan Anthony's sermon. The church of Jesus has no place for partiality, especially when it comes to rich and poor. James says in verse 1 of chapter 2 that if we're going to have faith in Jesus, then we can't be partial. We can't show special treatment or favoritism to the rich and the powerful. Apparently, this has always been a problem right from the beginning. James, Jesus' very own brother, and the first generation of the church, is telling the church to stop doing this. From the very beginning, this has been a temptation. Jesus, over and over and over, has to smack the disciples over the head. No, no, not even close. You really don't get it, do you? Because from the beginning of time, there's always been two choices. The way of glory in the way of the cross. When Jesus, over and over and over again, brought his disciples to the sick, the poor, the women, the children, the weak, the useless, the unclean, the least of these, and said that the only people like this can enter the kingdom of heaven, they were like, yes. So you're saying, be nice to people, live a holy life, and God will bless you. Got it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Unless you come and die, you can't follow me. And the disciples are like, so you're saying you're going to be king, and we get to rule alongside you in glory and honor. And you can imagine Jesus' frustration. Did I stutter? But we like glory. We like power. And we don't like sacrifice, and we don't like suffering. And we like rich and powerful people, and we like the glory and the power that we get just from spending time with them, from chatting them up, from schmoozing, seeing how we can use their glory to our own advantage. 
And this is how the early Christians were acting at church. That's what James says in verse 2, that rich people and poor people were both showing up at these Eucharistic assemblies, and the people were falling all over themselves, trying to make the rich feel welcome. And the poor people were more or less ignored. He says, you go stand over there. But James, using his characteristically strong language, says in verse 5, and this is my paraphrase, didn't God choose the poor people of the world to be rich in faith? But that's exactly who you dishonored. In fact, Jesus says that the rich people are barely going to make it into heaven, and those are the people that you're showing partiality to. What James is doing here is the fundamental job of every minister of the gospel, grabbing the people by the shoulders and shaking the nonsense out of their head and saying, remember Jesus, remember the cross, glory only in the cross, everything else is a lie, everything else is an idol, look to God, God is on the cross, put your faith in God, not in riches. What does that faith look like? And in verse 14, James takes us to a little discussion about genuine faith, saving faith. The faith that God looks for in his people. He writes, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? And it's very tempting to mute what James is saying here. It's tempting to answer him, well, James, technically, hypothetically, I guess it is possible, a faith without works might be able to save someone. That's the kind of reply you would expect from the scribes and the Pharisees, where they try to interpret the law so that they can feel okay about breaking the law. But James doesn't play that game. He says, no. He says in verse 17, answering his own question, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And a dead faith is not a saving faith. So what does a saving faith look like? Well, James shows that it's the opposite of the sin of partiality. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they needed for their body, then what good is that? When he's trying to illustrate how faith and works work together, the best illustration he has is taking care of the poor. This works on two levels. First, the most basic level. The best way to embody saving faith, to live into a true faith, is to show that you value the poverty of the cross over the riches of men, and that you care for the poor, the weak, and the destitute. In the previous chapter, James said pure religion is caring for widows and orphans, foster care, adoptions. James has lots of good things to say about that. But the second meaning of James' words is that he's using the image of caring for the poor as a metaphor to show how works themselves care for the life and health of faith. This is the very old explanation of the character of good works as medicine for the soul. Now hear me clearly. This says nothing about good works replacing faith, um, how if you have good works, it can make up for having a lack of faith. If you believe that, that's the opposite of faith, because faith is all about poverty. It's about lack. Trusting in your works for your own salvation is the same theology of glory that Jesus came to kill. So I'm not talking about anything like being good enough to get into heaven. I'm talking about what a life of faith looks like. 
James says, it looks like good works. I want to show you a little bit of that in our gospel reading from today. So turn there. We're in Mark chapter 9. Our passage today is about an exorcism, but it's important to read it in the larger context of the gospel. Immediately before today's passage was the transfiguration. It's one of those three apocalypses in Mark where the heavens are torn open, God speaks directly to men about who Jesus is. Uh, Three of the disciples went up on a mountain with Jesus. It was Peter, James, and John, and Jesus was changed into his glorious form. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And when they came down from the mountain, he said, don't tell anybody about what you saw until the son of man rises from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves, and they just kind of shrugged it off, and they're like, what's he talking about? Rise from the dead? Jesus tries to explain to his disciples how the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, but they just don't get it. Their faith is so small that they can't even comprehend the direct words of Jesus himself, spoken right in front of them. Can this type of faith save? Is this even faith? In the very next scene, which is our reading for today, Mark tells us that the disciples were trying to heal someone, but they couldn't. What does Jesus say in verse 19? O wicked and faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then a man brings his son to Jesus and says, the boy has a demon that triggers the boy into epileptic seizures in order to hurt the boy. And the man says something that kind of sets Jesus off. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And I want you to pay attention to the fact that the crux of this story is all about belief. It's about faith. And Jesus is struggling to find anyone anywhere who has faith. And this man immediately responds to him. And he responds with some of the most touching exclamations in Scripture. It's a response that many of us can relate to. The man says to Jesus in desperation, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus responds by casting the demon out. And then Mark says the boy appeared to be dead. And then Jesus lifts him up. Jesus is using this exorcism as a way to illustrate, again, death and resurrection. Before their very eyes, the Son of a Man was delivered into the hands of men. He was killed. Remember in verse 26, the disciples thought the boy was dead. And then the boy rose again. I want to come back to what Jesus tells his disciple about this and skip ahead for a second to the text that comes after our gospel reading for today. Because immediately after... Um, Beginning in verse 30 and following, they leave town after the exorcism, and on the way, Jesus teaches them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then verse 32 says, and they did not understand him. And to illustrate how little they get it, how feeble their faith is, the very next passage shows them arguing with each other about who's going to be the greatest. Anything about the way of the cross and the disciples are baffled. 
But as soon as we're talking about faith in the Messiah as a path to glory and honor, they liked that part. They just didn't get it, did they? So back to our reading, verses 28 and 29. After Jesus healed the boy, he and the disciples got together and talked. They want to know why Jesus could heal the boy, but they couldn't. And his answer was, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There's multiple layers to understanding what Jesus means about this phrase, this kind. Some people like to go into very wild speculations about the different types of demons and the different ways to get rid of them. But if you read the whole gospel, that seems like a rabbit trail. Because the overarching theme in this passage and the passages that surround it is faith. Of all the things that need an exorcism, chief among them is unbelief. Which is obviously rampant. So to give you a clue how the early church might have understood this passage, some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark, uh, they don't just say, this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They add the phrase, and fasting. Prayer and fasting. The only way to drive out unbelief is through prayer and fasting. Spiritual disciplines. Works of faith. And this should help you see how our Gospel reading and the Epistle of James are related. Both texts address works and faith. In the epistle of James, James talks about how impossible it is to have a living faith without works. He describes the relationship between works and faith. He says that works are the true fruit of faith. But he uses the image of clothing and feeding a person in need to explain the relationship of works to faith. Works clothe and protect faith and nourish it to keep it alive. In the Gospels, Jesus deals with people that lack faith. The disciples try to do great and powerful works, even compassionate works, works of healing and blessing, but they have no faith. Their eyes have not been opened to the truth of the gospel of the cross. All they can focus on are works of power, glory, advantage, just like the Christians that James is writing to who focus on the rich and the powerful rather than the poor and the needy. Jesus tells them, that the most powerful work is the one that clothes and nourishes faith. Prayer. They want to know how to have the type of faith that Jesus talks about, and he says, you need prayer. This is how James, the book of good works and mercy and compassion, ends. If you ever look at chapter 5, verse 13 says, Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? Call the elders. Have them pray. Is anyone sick? In verse, 15, and I'm sorry, in verse 15, it says, The prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise him up. Which again, kind of alludes back to our gospel passage today. And if you've sinned, you'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, one another and pray. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Pray, pray, pray. The conclusion of James, the epistle of works, is pray. For the disciples to truly and fully know the power of God, they need to become prayers, beggars, people who are humbled into begging God for His graces day in and day out. Through His work, our weak and dying faith can be clothed and nourished to life. Through it, we gain a real appreciation of our impotence, our inability, 
our weakness, the deadness of our own faith, and through it, we receive power, confidence, strength, and a vibrant living faith. But what if you're like me? What if you don't relate to the disciples, or to Jesus, or to James? What if the person that you most related to in this story was the father of the tortured son? What if this is your faith? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. How do you start? On I-95 North, there is a man. His name is Tom Trout. Who knows Tom Trout? He has a letter board on the billboard for his construction business, and he uses the letter board to share inspiring quotes that he either gets from somewhere else or that he comes up with himself. It's kind of a unique part of Jacksonville culture. Every week or so, he changes it out to something else, and he's been doing it for over 30 years. And for some people, it's the highlight of their day, which is true. Uh, you can read testimonials of people who um, were having a very dark day. They drove by, they read his signs, and um, it became a little bit brighter. A couple weeks ago, Tom shared one of my favorite quotes. It said, We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Now, the quote's usually attributed to Aristotle, but it's not actually by Aristotle, though it is the kind of thing that Aristotle would say. We are what we repeatedly do. And I actually had that quote posted up in my classroom. Now, the virtues can only be obtained through repetition and habit. If you want to become an honest man, you don't just decide one day to just start telling the truth. It starts every day with a hundred little choices that we make at every moment to tell the truth when we speak to people. The choices we make over and over chisel away at us like a piece of marble being carved into a statue where eventually what we hope for starts to emerge. This is the logic of the liturgy. We don't say the words we say over and over, week after week, because we always feel them in our heart. Sometimes we don't feel them in our heart. The point of saying them over and over, even especially when we don't feel them in our heart, is that eventually, as we chip and chip and chip at our character, eventually we will come to feel them. We don't pray the liturgy because we feel thankful. We pray it so that we can feel thankful. We become what we repeatedly do. C.S. Lewis has a chapter near the end of mere Christianity called Let's Pretend. In it, he talks about that paradox in our gospel reading. I believe. Help my unbelief. He talks about an old fairy tale about an ugly man who had to wear a mask. He wore the mask for years. Finally, one day, when the mask was taken off, the man's face had grown into the shape of it. And instead of being ugly, he had become beautiful. Lewis says that this is the nature of the language that we read in Scripture when we're told to put on Christ. We don't dress up as Christ because we are really holy. We dress up as Christ in order to become holy, in order to become more like him so that we can grow into him. We don't pray because our faith is great. 
We pray because it isn't. We believe. Help our unbelief. That man's response to Jesus is a prayer. This is even the flow of the liturgy. When I'm done here, we'll recite the creed. We'll stand and tell God, we believe. And then we immediately move from there to our knees as we begin the prayers of the people. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lewis says one of the best ways to start to pray, especially if you don't know how to pray, is to pray the Lord's Prayer. He points out that the prayer itself models putting on Christ for us. It begins, our Father. This means that God is our Father, and that means that we are begotten from Him. But we know that only Jesus, the Son of God, is begotten from God. Already, as we begin the prayer, we're pretending. We're speaking as though we are Christ Himself. His words become our words. And as we pray those words, we start to see that all the ways that they aren't true. We realize how much we have to pretend. And through that, God does two things. He nourishes our faith. We realize our helplessness and our dependence on His grace. And second, we begin to see the ways that we can start to act like His children. We start to see the ways that we can demonstrate our faith through good works. Through prayer, our faith is nourished and we become equipped to clothe our faith in works of mercy and grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.